good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Please turn tonight in the copy of the Word of God before you uh, to the Psalm 123. Let's again give attention to the public reading of the Word of God. Psalm 123 in the verse number 1. Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God, until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Amen. May God indeed bless his word to our hearts tonight for his name's sake. Well, let's remember that these Psalms were at one point used by the pilgrims heading to Jerusalem. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're singing these psalms. And that experience was a vivid picture of the life of the believer. Bunyan, of course, captured it beautifully in his allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. We are heading to the celestial city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the Christian life is a pilgrimage along the way. You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and you'll see that Peter uses the same imagery, the imagery of the pilgrim. 1 Peter chapter 2, and the verse number 11, Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. And Peter reminds the believers, as Paul did to the believers in Hebrews chapter 11, that they are pilgrims. They're looking for a better country, a heavenly, because God is preparing for us a city. This world is, is not their home. They don't belong here. None of us as children of God belong in this world. This world is still broken by the fall, and therefore we are strangers and pilgrims. And in such an environment, there is the temptation to sin. We are therefore told to abstain from fleshly lusts. This world is hostile to the child of God. It's a hostile environment. But we're also to live in the context of the reproach of men. Again, the verse says that they speak against you as evildoers, 1 Peter 2 and the verse number 12. We who are Christ's are hated as Christ was hated. And the ungodly will often speak evil against the child of God. I remember as a high school student arguing for the sanctity of the Lord's day, arguing for the principle in a class of the importance of keeping the Sabbath day holy. And the teacher told me, you're nothing but a Puritan. The people of God, if they stand for righteousness, they will bear the reproach of men. That's a very minor experience. But the gospel preacher, perhaps in the open air, proclaiming the exclusive nature of salvation in Christ, will become guilty of hate crime in the present day and age. 
the Christian parent using the rod in a loving fashion is guilty of abuse. The pro-life campaigner is guilty of denying human rights. Recently, the college football coach praying with his team is under investigation and again acting in a manner that is unconstitutional. These are days in which we are living, days in which the stand for the Christian faith is a stand that will bring about reproach. And that's the experience of the psalmist here in the Psalm 123. He describes the soul as being exceedingly filled with contempt. And the sense is that the people of God are being held in contempt as they walk as pilgrims in this world. New things may be said in our generation, but it's the same old struggles. We don't belong here. We're going to a better country, a heavenly country. And so these Psalms are living testimonies of the pilgrims. They are living testimonies of the experiences and the conflicts and the struggles of those who are walking in this world to another world. These Psalms are dealing with the, the conflict that arises for those who are the pilgrims of God in a fallen world. It is not easy at times. A Christian will suffer from reproach. It is a mark of God's grace to this land that our reproach is not what it could have been. It's a mark of God's grace that there's some level of Christian heritage whereby the, the people of God are not held in reproach as they may be in other lands. But to some degree or other, if you're faithfully living for God, you will bring the scorn and the contempt and the reproach of others. But these Psalms, they encourage us. They encourage us that we are following a path that is well trodden, a path that others have walked, and others have walked in faith to God and walked with God. And so what you think of this psalm in particular tonight, and the first thing I want to note is the role of the pilgrim. The role, R-O-L-E, the role of the pilgrim. We are servants under a master, Verse number two, behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God. Our God is spirit. And thus we, we struggle at times to grasp how we relate to one who is immortal, invisible, God only wise. We are physical. You know, we can pinch ourselves, we can see ourselves in the mirror. And we, our physical struggle at times, to understand how do we relate to God who is invisible, the spiritual God. And thus to help us in understanding, God is pleased to use various pictures to describe our relationship. He uses various metaphors. We are sheep. He is the shepherd. He is the farmer and we are the vineyard. Indeed, he is the vine and we are the branches. He is the builder and we are living stones. And here the metaphor is that we are servants, and he is the master. And the master-servant metaphor is a very suitable metaphor to explain our role as pilgrims. It reminds us of our submission. We are under the authority of God. We do his will. The liberty that we enjoy as the people of God is a liberty from sin and from Satan, but it's a liberty to truly serve God. That language is perhaps not a modern concept. It's not popular in today's thinking. 
And I understand, coming from the UK, as you understand here, that the concept of slavery has so many negative connotations for the, for, for the, for the believer. The abuse, the act of man stealing, and has raised so many challenges when it comes to this picture that God is pleased to use. That of servant and master. But it's exactly the image that God uses if you turn to Romans chapter 6. Again, Paul is speaking, and again, I would just, in, in passing comment in light of what I've just said, of the slavery of Bible times is altogether different from the slavery that was the abomination of our lands in the past day. But you have it there in verse number 16 of Romans 6. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Paul is saying you're, you're a servant one way or the other. It's not a case of servants of sin, servants of righteousness, and the free in the middle. No, you're either one or the other. And so verse, 16, verse 17 says, But God be thanked that ye were in the past the servants of sin, but ye've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, that is namely the gospel. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. And thus true Christian liberty is a freedom from sin to serve Christ. Christian liberty is abused today that you are free to do what you like. And that's not ever taught in the Word of God. The freedom we enjoy is a freedom to do that which is right and pleasing in the sight of God. The shackles of our sin, they are broken. And thus, we have a freedom that we didn't once have. We have a new master, a better master, a gracious master. And we serve in submission to his will. And thus, this picture or relationship of master-servant is helpful. It reminds us that in all of our lives, we want to know what does the Father, what does our master want us to do? For not only are we in submission, we are also in service. We live for the advance of the master's estate. You think of the parables, the parables of the talents or the pounds. We are to use what God has given us for the increase of his estate, the advance of his glory and his name and his kingdom. The parables of the talents and the pounds, the servants they don't keep what they gain. They give it back to the master, the Lord, the one in authority. And we are servants of the king. And thus we live our lives with the aim and the objective of advancing the Lord's cause, the glory of his name and the advance of his kingdom. And we are to use those gifts and resources that God has given us for the advance of his name. That is our duty as pilgrims. We are going to see the king. And we are serving the king as we make our way to see him in the time to come. But there's also the issue, and that's the issue of this psalm in particular. And that is the supply. The master supplies the needs of the servant. The servant depended upon the master for this supply. Proverbs 31 refers to the excellent wife, the godly woman. And in verse 15 it says this, She riseth also while it is yet night, and giveth meat to her household, and a portion to her maidens. 
Godly, godly masters, they give the portion to their maidens. And that's the issue of supply that is particularly in view here in the Psalm 123. So we'll keep that in mind. We are given here a role. We are servants of a heavenly master. But then you see in the second place the matter of the reproach. I've already said in, in the introduction that this occurs. We don't belong here, and thus we are, we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Verse number 3. Note the identity of those who are reproaching. They are those in verse 4 who are said to be at ease, and those who are proud. It's interesting in passing that you wonder, is this referring perhaps to those who actually profess to be part of God's people? Clearly, they are not converted, they are not regenerate, they are not the children of God, but they are part of, of that family of God in the Old Testament. Those perhaps of Israel, but those who were not prepared to exert themselves for the glory of God. Those who are proud and arrogant, who were not living in that humble role of the servant, but were, were living for their own agenda. And they gave reproach to those who were diligent in the service of Christ. I sometimes wonder that today, in the age in which we live, that if you are serious about holiness, and serious about worship, and serious about serving God, it is the professed believer who will give you the most abuse and will bring most reproach and contempt to your name because you rebuke their ease. Amos 6 says, Woe to them who are at ease in Zion. And there are those, again, in this culture who, who believe that one hour on the Lord's Day is plenty. And they believe if, if you're cutting off your right hand and plucking out your eye, you're, you're far too serious and far too severe about your sin. And they will mock you and they will scoff at you. And the psalmist says, we are exceedingly filled with contempt. You know, you perhaps invited people to the meetings that we held here in September and October. People said to you, what are you doing that for? What are you trying to achieve? What hope do you have of bringing people into your church from the neighborhood? It's a waste of time. They laugh us to scorn. And God knows that. You note in the second place the impact of the reproach. He says, we are exceedingly filled with contempt. It's a very simple, very simple language. In essence, the psalmist says, we've had enough. And this word filled is the word for sufficient. We've had enough. Again, we've thought in times past about the need to pray for God to come speedily, for God to come with urgency. And in a similar fashion, have we the confidence to say to God, we've had enough as God's people. We're filled with it. We live in an age, in a society, in a culture that is so against your will and brings reproach to us at every turn, whatever we, whatever we try to do for your name. Scoff and reproach and contempt, we've had enough. This is scriptural praying. And so you see in the third place then the resolution of the pilgrim. What is the response of the pilgrim as they live as servants under the reproach of the ungodly? What is the response? Suffering in the world broken by the fall. Is it a response of revenge? Is it a response of defeat? Surely it is a response of faith and of prayer at all times. Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. 
Note the posture. The eyes are lifted to God. Remember we saw in Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. And here the psalmist, the hills, of course, the place where God was in sacrifice. But here the psalmist lifts his eyes up to heaven itself. O thou that dwellest in the heavens. These uplifted eyes, they are lifted in prayer. Again, Christ in John 17, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is this posture, the attitude of prayer, praying to the God who dwells in the heavens, the God who hears prayer. Uh, turn back to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8 and the verse number 49. Then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven thy dwelling place and maintain their cause. He's addressing God as the God who dwells in heaven. Now, of course, we know that God is omnipresent. We know that there is no place where God is. We know that the heavens cannot contain God. Solomon says that in this very portion of Scripture. But in the same sense, the Bible speaks of God being specially present in heaven. That's the language the theologians would use. And God's special presence in heaven denotes his sovereign authority and power. You turn to Psalm 115. Whenever you refer to God in the heavens, Solomon is using it as an encouragement to pray. God hears from the heavens. But that reference to God in the heavens is a, connotes God's sovereign power. Verse 1 of Psalm 115, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. There's a sense in which God is seen in the world in his works. He is seen, and I use the word seen with inverted commas if you like, he is seen in glory and that light that no man can approach unto, but he's seen in earth by his works, but he's in heaven ruling and reigning. The heathen can say, where is your God? We can't see your God. And we say, no, our God is in the heavens and he reigns in absolute sovereignty. He does whatsoever he pleases. And again, that spirit is vital when it comes to the place of prayer. We are coming to a God who is able to answer our prayers. A God who is sovereignly ruling over the affairs of men so that when we go to him, he is able to hear and answer those prayers. But note the intriguing words that are used here. Verse number two. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God. So the eyes here that are lifted up to heaven are said to be like the eyes looking to the hand of the master or the hand of the mistress. Now, there are different things suggested by people regarding this. Spurgeon in the Treasure of David gives some interesting background regarding the culture in the Oriental world where the masters and mistresses would give direction by using their hands. No words used, just the direction of the hands. And the suggestion is that the, the servants were moving in, the, in, in connection with the, the movement of the hands. Others suggest that the view here is that of punishment. That the hands of the master or the mistress were being used to chasten a wayward servant. 
And thus the psalmist is crying for, for mercy from the chastening hand of God. So they're being chastened and they're asking for mercy. They're asking for God to hold back what the wayward servant deserves. But the third possibility, and I think the one that is most likely, is that the servants are looking to the hand of their masters for provision. Provision that is given out of the hand. And thus, having thought about the posture, look at the petition. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. And again, perhaps we are, are guilty of oversimplifying the language of the Word of God. Where we say grace is God's unmerited favor, and mercy is God not treating us as we deserve. And we use, we differentiate the two words in that way, and I don't think that does justice to the use of the words in the original, particularly in the Old Testament. It does at times have that sense of God withholding punishment and anger. But it can have the sense of God showing compassion in the context of affliction. It can speak of God showing favor. And you look at some of the ways it's used. Look at Psalm 25. Psalm 25, and you'll see this is the, uh, the word that's being used here in the Psalm 1, 2, 3. Psalm 25, and the verse 16. Turn unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. Or the Psalm 27, the verse number 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. Now the Psalm 30 and the verse number 10. Again, these are all the similar reference. Psalm 30, verse number 10. Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. And again, the context there is of, of affliction and trouble and difficulty. Asking for God to come as a helper. And he asks it, have mercy and be my helper. Proverbs chapter 14 and the verse number 21. He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth, but he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Or verse number 31. He that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker, but he that honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. The idea of supplying the needs of the poor. The word mercy being used here. In no way do we show mercy to the poor by withholding something they deserve. Rather, the mercy we show is giving them something they need. And that's the sense that is used here in Psalm 123. It is that God is being petitioned to give the psalmist the grace that he needs. Either to persevere in the midst of the contempt, or for God to intervene and overturn the contempt. Whatever the case may be, the psalmist simply says, have mercy. The same word is used in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. And that word gracious is the same word for mercy that is used here in Psalm 1, 2, 3. In other words, in our distress we can turn to God to show us his mercy. We are acting as servants who in that culture lived under the protection of a master. Not under the oppression, but under the protection. 
And it was the master's duty to plead the cause of his afflicted servant. And thus the servant had the right to go to the master and say, I am under affliction. Will you plead my cause, have mercy on me, and give me what I need? And thus they looked to the hand. Broadly speaking, and again I've tried to keep this in the context of the psalm, it's dealing with the issue of reproach and the contempt of those who walk as pilgrims on this world. But broadly speaking, Pilgrims have trouble in various ways in living in a hostile environment. And we should not shun the terminology of being a servant under the master. For our master is no hard taskmaster. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Our master is not oppressive and cruel and manipulative. He is a kind and gracious and a caring and a compassionate and a considerate master. And to be under his care is to be in the best place. And to be under his care is to look to his hand in the knowledge that he is willing to give abundantly out of his hand. Hence Paul would say that we are to go to a throne of grace. That we may receive grace. Have grace. Have mercy. Be gracious upon me. Grace to help in time of need. And so it may not be your experience tonight that you're being filled with contempt. But there may be something else in your life when you can say to God, God, I've had enough. Have mercy upon me. In my poverty and in my affliction, be pleased to have mercy upon me. The eyes of a servant look so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God. I encourage you if you can find a copy of Spurgeon's Treasury of David. There's a beautiful reference in that book regarding how the servant looks to the master. He used eight adverbs. They look reverently. They look obediently. They look attentively. They look continuously. They look expectantly. They look singly. They look submissively. They look imploringly. We must keep our eyes to a gracious master. He is willing and able to give us the grace that we need to live as pilgrims in a barren land. May God bless his word again to our souls tonight for his name's sake. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.